What do you think is the future of Christianity? Uh, How do you think uh, things will pan out for churches and Christians in Australia or the world in the next 10 or 50 years? Uh, Some of us will be fairly positive. Uh, We'll look at things around the place and be thankful. Over the last few weeks, we've seen the young church plant in Aura has become independent A few years ago, this church didn't exist, uh, partly because the city of Aura didn't exist. And if you're not aware, Aura is a new city being built uh, southwest of Caloundra. So there used to be a church of zero people in Aura. And now uh, the Presbyterian church there has grown and is thriving. Uh, People have become believers. Uh, People have grown as believers. Uh, Men have been raised up as elders. They're able to pay for their own minister and ministry. And so praise God, where there used to be no church, there is now an independent church. Uh, You also hear about the enrolments at Queensland Theological College, where Rayek, who was with us over summer, is studying. Uh, That photo is from their graduation ceremony last week. Uh, Last year, 2021, they were the biggest they've ever been more enrolled students than ever before. And it's not just QTC, it's not just our theological college, many evangelical theological colleges around our nations had a, around our nation had a boost in enrolments last year. Uh, you hear stories like this and maybe you're feeling really positive about the future of Christianity. Uh, but maybe you're not convinced. Now, there are also some negative trends. Uh, we're yet to get the results of last year's census, but if we see the same trend as we have over the last few years, last few decades, fewer and fewer Australians will have ticked the box for any kind of Christianity. In our region, in the Gympie region, I think this is going to be amplified. Uh, at the last census, uh, Gympie residents were less religious than average. More people ticked no religion in, on the box in Gympie than most other places in our state and nation. And if that's the trend, then I think Gympie will be ahead of the curve. And then there's the tone in society and media. Uh, Christians, Christians and churches are on the nose, uh, not least of which because Barely a week goes by when there's not another revelation of a Christian leader either personally guilty of abuse or guilty of covering up abuse, blaming the victim, persecuting the victim and protecting the perpetrator. So what do you think is the future of Christianity? Is it on the up or the down? Which story is true? Uh, Today we're going back to the beginning, back to the earliest days of the Jesus movement. And we're going to see that from the start, the story has been complicated. Uh, Two weeks ago, when we were last in Acts, we heard about the first big sin, the first big failure within the Jerusalem church. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira lied. They wanted to look impressive and godly, but it was all fake. 
and God dealt, sorry, God dealt swiftly with them. This resulted in the believers fearing God, getting serious about genuinely living for him. And as we pick things up in verse 12, we see what this looked like. God continued to be at work through his church. Uh, Believers were meeting publicly in the temple. Uh, The apostles were teaching and miracles were happening. People were being saved. But also, the early church was polarising. Some Jews kept their distance from the followers of Jesus. Uh, Have a listen from verse 12. This is Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, which is a part of the temple precinct. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. You see the growing tension between those who have believed Jesus is God's king and those who haven't. At this point, the rest of the Jewish people respected the believers, probably because they saw their godly lives their extraordinary love for each other as they gave of their own possessions to make sure that no one was in need. But they were also wary. Maybe because they'd heard of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe because they knew the Jewish leaders didn't approve. But despite the wariness, despite them being a little bit standoffish now amongst uh, towards the Christians, God was giving life, both physical life through healing but even more spiritual life as people trusted in Jesus. But with this growing movement, and last we heard, it is over 5,000 believers and it's growing every day. With this growing movement, the Jewish leaders are also growing in jealousy. So they take action. Verse 17 Then the high priest and all his associates, who were, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Sounds like deja vu, doesn't it? Sounds like something we've heard before. It's pretty similar to chapter 3, though the temperature's turning up. In Acts 3, there was only one healing, the lame man. Now there are loads. In in chapter 3, only Peter and John were arrested. Now it's the 12 apostles. In chapter 3, they spent the night in jail without incident. This time, God miraculously intervenes. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Why does God send an angel? I assume God knows they'll need extra encouragement even a direct command to keep speaking about Jesus. What the angel says is interesting, isn't it? It's not keep witnessing to the resurrection, but speak about this new life. I think that means not only speak about what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, but speak about what it means, new life, 
life in the spirit for those who believe. And when an angel of the Lord tells you to do something, you do it. Verse 21, at daybreak they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. Now I love this next bit. I think I could tell that Margaret did too as she she read it for us. So it's the next day. And the Jewish leaders decide it's time to deal with this Jesus movement once and for all. A few months ago they killed Jesus. A few days or weeks ago they arrested Peter and John. Now they've got the whole 12. They've got them all locked up. It's time to show them who's in charge. And so with the, the apostles locked up in jail, or so they think, they gather all the most powerful men in Israel, the full Sanhedrin, the most powerful religious court, to show those apostles who's boss. Verse 21 continues. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, well, we found the jail securely locked with the, the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. These blokes, they look like absolute buffoons, don't they? I'm not 100% sure, but it sounds like they're meeting somewhere in the temple precincts. Here they are, puffed up with all their pride, strutting around a magnificent building in their fancy robes, sitting on impressive chairs, thinking they are in control. But just a few metres away are the very blokes they're looking for, doing exactly what they've been told not to do. It's like something out of Looney Tunes. But finally, someone, and it's not one of the high-up Sanhedrin, it's not one of the the officers, not one of the guards, just some normal person, finally some normal person works out what's going on, shows the emperor has no clothes, and so they quickly send some soldiers who themselves are scaredy-cats. Verse 25, then someone came and said, hey, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that The captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. And it doesn't get any better for the religious leaders. The high priest gets up to speak just shows how powerless he is. He's already told the believers to not speak about Jesus. And here they are, you guys are making me look like a fool, as if he needs any help. Verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem, the whole of Jerusalem, with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now remember what happened the last time they were arrested? Remember what happened when they were last told to not say anything or do anything in Jesus' name? The last time the chief priest spoke to them? Well, the believers prayed for boldness. Well, God is still answering their prayer. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour. 
that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Not only is there boldness, but what the apostles say is astounding. They affirm their boldness and complete commitment to God. They say, look, we're not trying to start some new religion. This is the fulfilment of everything God promised. They proclaim the cross. In fact, that little phrase, you notice it there, hanging him on a cross, literally it's hanging him on a tree, it brings to mind a sentence from Deuteronomy, which says, if you die by being hung on a tree, either hanging you know, with a rope or crucifixion, either of those ways of death, you are cursed by God. In this one little sentence, Peter hints at the truth that Jesus died to take onto himself the curse of God, the curse we deserve for our sin, so believers can receive forgiveness and eternal life. So the apostles proclaim Jesus' crucifixion, and the apostles testify to the resurrection, that although Jesus was accursed on the cross, he was exalted by God because his death was not for his own sin. He wasn't cursed because of his own sin, but for ours. And finally, with great courage, they call the Sanhedrin, they call the most powerful religious men, the most powerful political Jewish people, they call them to repent of their sin. Most of all, their sin of killing God's king and invite them to receive God's forgiveness. It's an astounding message, isn't it? You kill God, but there is still forgiveness for Israel. It's a bold message proclaiming Jesus as prince and saviour and calling for repentance. It's great news. But sadly, their hearts remain hard. They are intent on increasing their sin by killing the apostles. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Now, you can imagine the uproar and commotion in that room. Seventy or so men and the hangers-on shouting for blood. But in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the anxiety comes a calm voice of reason. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who is honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men, that's the apostles, be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Do you get the point of these stories? What he's saying is, have a think about these two similar events. Uh, Twice in recent-ish history, there's been a revolutionary leader rise up, gather a following, 
and we get rid of the leader. Or maybe the Romans do the job. Either way, we chop off the head and very soon the followers, the body, shrivel up and go away. And so he's saying, maybe we should do the same here. We've already killed Jesus. The followers will soon disappear. We don't even have to get our hands dirty. Verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or human, human, sorry, activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel's point is more than historical. He's not a conservative. He's not just saying, let's just do things as we've always done them. No, he's not a conservative, he's a Pharisee, he's a theologian. He has a strong sense, God is in control, God's hand is active in the world. He's saying, let's leave this situation to God. Now, a question we want to come back to is, is Gamaliel correct? Normally when we meet a Pharisee in the Bible, what they say is wrong. Is Gamaliel right or wrong at this point? We'll come back to this in a moment, but at least the Sanhedrin thought he was right. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now if you were one of the apostles, how would you have felt I reckon if most of us were there, we would have been wishing Gamaliel was just a touch more persuasive. Thanks, mate, for saving our lives. That's, that's not so bad, but couldn't you have just gotten us out of the whipping too? Uh, like this whipping is no slap on the wrist. Think cat of nine tails type flogging. You haven't been killed, but you almost have. I wonder if some of us would be thinking, this is enough. It's just not worth it anymore. Let's give up on Jesus. Uh, Maybe some of us would be finding the saddest psalm in the most minor key and crying out lament to God. How have you let this happen to us? What have we done wrong? Maybe we'd be like the sons of thunder, calling down the fire of God's judgment upon the Sanhedrin. That's not how the apostles responded. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. How foolish does the Sanhedrin look? They've got no idea what's going on and no ability to stop what God is doing through the apostles. Even torture doesn't stop them. It just makes them stronger. They go back to the temple and to people's homes, public and private, speaking of Jesus. Why do they rejoice? Why don't they complain? Why don't they lament? Many churchgoers today, we whinge when our preferences aren't met. Serve the wrong kind of coffee at morning tea. Can't find a car park close enough. You wouldn't hear the end of it, will you? 
But these believers are tortured and they rejoice. Makes you think where our priorities are and whether we really love God more than anything else. And why do they rejoice and not complain or lament? Well, they believed and obeyed Jesus. Jesus told them and us, Luke chapter 6, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Jesus commands his people to rejoice when we suffer because our reward is great in heaven. How could the apostles rejoice when they've just been beaten to a pulp? Because they love Jesus more than their own comfort and safety. Because they have their eyes on eternity. They would never give up eternity with Christ for a moment's reprieve now. They also know Christ is with them in their suffering. The Bible sometimes talks about believers as the body of Christ. Because we are united to Christ by faith, there is a real sense in which the suffering of Christians, the suffering of the body of Christ, is a suffering of Christ himself. Later in Acts, Jesus will say to Saul, Saul, who is a student of Gamaliel, though doesn't share his let God deal with it approach. He didn't learn that from Gamaliel. Jesus says to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? The ascended Jesus doesn't say, why do you persecute them? Why do you persecute my followers? No, why do you persecute me? When we suffer as Christians for being Christian, when we suffer for the name of Jesus... Because we are one with Jesus by faith, because his spirit dwells within us, in a real way, our suffering is his suffering. And because the apostles believe this, they are tortured and they rejoice. And with the strength of God the Spirit, they keep proclaiming Christ and the gospel continues to progress and grow. Here we see the complexity and tension of following a crucified and risen Christ. Followers of Jesus will suffer. As Paul writes, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be blessed and successful. No, that's not what he says. God says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Part of the future and the history of Christianity is persecution. A persecution might be formal and official. It might come from leaders like the Sanhedrin. A king or parliament makes it illegal that you change your religion, that you become a follower of Jesus. They might make praying for people in certain situations or encouraging people to live a godly life. That might become against the law. 
It could be made illegal to share anything religious on social media, a law that's just come into force in China. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so in those situations, we obey God rather than human beings. And Christians will face the consequences of doing so. Though for most of us, and actually for many Christians around the world, uh, the pressure is informal and social. Uh, You don't talk about sex, politics or religion in polite company. And if you dare do so, you'll feel the room get smaller. And there's a growing sense in some sections of our society that religious people, especially Christians, wear the bad guys. Our belief in Jesus isn't just weird, it's dangerous and therefore must not be promoted or tolerated. Now how to live in this situation, to how to face up to the ball we've been bold, ball we've been bold calls for wisdom. But also courage and rejoicing. I see plenty of hand wringing by some Christian lobbyists. Not much rejoicing. This is what Jesus said would happen. We are persecuted with and in Christ. Eternity is worth it. But you put all this together and maybe you start thinking, look, the future for Christianity is pretty bleak. Ever increasing persecution and oppression. Maybe Gamaliel was wrong. Something being of God is no guarantee of success. But at the same time, Acts is the record of God's plan. The plan for God's kingdom to spread by the power of the Holy Spirit through his people speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's the key verse right from chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is God's agenda and he's kept to it. Part of what we're seeing in Acts chapter 5 is how slow the apostles were to get with the program. Yes, they're witnessing to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, but they're still in the temple. They're stuck in Jerusalem. Level one, there's a whole world that needs Jesus. But as their story continues, and then eventually their story becomes our story, we see this is God's plan. Killing Jesus, torturing the apostles was not the end of the Jesus movement. It has spread around the globe, persevered through history. Princes and peasants have bowed the knee to Jesus. And so what does this mean for the future of Christianity? It means we should expect exactly what Jesus promised, exactly what has been experienced by our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world. The kingdom will not only persevere, but it will grow and Christians will be persecuted until the Lord Jesus returns. It's both and. Gamaliel was both right and wrong. God will grow his kingdom. Nothing will stand against it, not even the gates of Hades. But at the same time, there'll be persecution. 
The gates of Hades, the realm of, of the dead, will try its best because Jesus is both crucified and exalted. Success for his people will not be straightforward. Yes, Christ will build his church, but it will be through suffering, rejoicing and pressing on. And so our task, like the apostles, is both to uh, persevere and proclaim, to persevere and even rejoice when persecuted. And to proclaim this new life, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus to all who will hear, knowing God will save and grow his people. Let's pray. Father God, strengthen us, your people, to face trials of various kinds. Give us the strength to endure the trials of life with faithfulness and joy. Strengthen us to suffer for the name of Christ. May the glory of Jesus and the certain hope of eternity in Christ so fill our hearts and minds that the certainty of eternity far outweighs the pain of persecution. Please be growing your church even in our region. May you open the ears and eyes of many people that they might receive new life and persevere in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.